Okay, brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, thank you so much for attending our Bible study for this evening. Before we go ahead and proceed to our study of the Word of God, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Almighty and merciful God in heaven, yes. as always, we praise your holy name. Yes. We are truly thankful for safely bringing us together yes. so that we can study your holy words. Yes. We know, Father, you have a purpose for why you have given us this good book. Yes. to give us inspiration and guidance yes. that we may know your will, yes. that, Father, we can be fully prepared for the great day of our salvation. Amen. Bless our minds and our hearts, please. Yes. Forgive yes. our sins as well. Yes. Make us worthy, O Father, to receive your holy wisdom. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we also worship you. Yes. We believe you are with us at this moment, yes. for we are gathered in your precious name. Pray for your servants throughout the world. Unite us with one spirit, O Lord, that we may be connected to you and to our God. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. You have blessed each and every one of us. For we ask and beg everything, O God, in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So I guess we're already in Genesis number six or chapter six, I should say. And we're going to talk today about Noah's Ark. However, it's only part one, part two of Noah's Ark. We're going to be discussing not this week, but next week. So we open up with Genesis uh, chapter six. But before we go ahead to Genesis chapter six, I just want to remind everyone the purpose of Bible History Project is not to be dogmatic. We are here to explore the scriptures, which is why we go through the history of the people of God. There are three purposes for why we have the Bible History Project. What are they? Next slide, please. It is, number one, to learn the patterns presented by the Bible so that we can gain hope during this time. Number two, it is to find Christ in all scriptures. As the saying goes, the Bible is Christ-centric. The Old Testament speak about Christ, the New Testament is all about Christ, so the Bible is Christ-centric. We want to find hints of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us hope that God, even in the midst of wickedness and judgment, He will find a way to redeem mankind. And number three, to see the wonderful things in God's Word. So let's begin with Genesis chapter 6 and the verses 1. This is what it says. The number of people increased all over the earth, and the daughters were born to them, according to scriptures, after Seth, the line of Seth was presented in Genesis chapter 5, there was an increase of the number of people all over the earth. We call this a population explosion, which causes us to ask the question, I wonder how many people were alive or were there on the earth prior to the flood. And so when you do the calculation or the math, next slide, we will use what is called the population growth percentage. In the 1960s, the, popula the population growth rate was 2% in the 1960s. I guess that was during the time when human beings, especially in the Philippines, they had lots of kids, right? In the current uh, growth rate for the population is 1.07%. Someone calculated if during the time of the pre-flood ancient civilization, if the growth rate was 1.3%, there would have been 4 billion people at the time of the flood. However, if you factor in the fact that back then human beings lived to 
900 years of age, and the death rate was very low because of the good condition of the earth and the genetics of the first humans, you probably can assume that it was much higher than 1.3%. Probably more than 4 billion people were around when the flood finally hit the ancient world. And if you factor in how many kids they had as a family, next slide, if, for example, we use five to eight children per family, the population falls within the range of 2 billion to 11.5 billion. And so before the flood, next slide, there was a great population explosion. However, it was not only the population that became, that was uh, rampant, what also became rampant, what also happened during that time. Genesis chapter 6 and the verses 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Now, this passage of Scripture has undergone a lot of debate over the years. And up to this very moment, there are people who debate who the sons of God were and who the daughters of men were, right? And so what is the popular belief uh, when people read Genesis chapter 6 and the verses 2? Next slide. There is the fallen angel's view. That means to say the sons of God refers to fallen angels because we know there were spiritual beings. Angels were not humans. Fallen angels do not refer to us. Okay, There were actual fallen spiritual beings who followed the deception of Lucifer. And these fallen angels were referred to as the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, and the daughters of men referred to human beings. And this is the, called the fallen angel's view. And what is the basis for why they believe this? Well, when you take a look at the Hebrew word for sons of God, it uses beni ha Elohim, which is used throughout Scripture. And whenever it is used, it refers to an angelic or spiritual being. What is the proof? Let's go to Job chapter 38, 4 and 7. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Take note, God is speaking face to face to who? Job, right? Because Job was telling God, you know, why did, why did all this happen to me? What did I do? And God was giving him a lecture on where he was when he created the earth. And so he said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so even before the earth was created, there were the sons of God. Who are they being referred to? The morning stars or the angels of heaven. And so their conclusion is when you read sons of God, in the Old Testament, it refers not to human beings. It refers to the angels of heaven. And so their conclusion regarding Genesis 6 verse 2, next slide, is prior to the flood. Fallen angels, spiritual beings, had intercourse with the daughters of men or with human beings. However, there are some problems with that belief. How many here, when they read Genesis chapter 6 and the verses 2, convinced themselves that the sons of God referred to in Genesis 6-2 were the angels of heaven? 
Anyone here? I mean, I'm not going to contest with you or debate with you. Anyone here? No? Nobody? Yeah? Well, there are several problems with that view. Number one, next slide, please. If these were fallen angels, Genesis 6-2, then they should not have been called sons of God. Job chapter 1, verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, who was also an angel, also came among them. So Satan was not called the son of God. It was called Satan, meaning adversary. So he was being called adversary and not Lucifer because he already fell. And so if the fallen angels were the ones referred to in Genesis chapter 6, verses 2, then they should not have been called sons of God. They should have been called fallen angels. Next slide, number two. Adam was also called the son of God. Luke 3.38, son of Enosh, son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So not every mentioning of son of God refers to an angelic being. Number three, angels do not marry. If you go back to Genesis 6 verse 2, it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. But what did Christ say about angels? Matthew 22 verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So the angels of God do not marry. Number four, the flood was judgment against people. Genesis 6, 12 to 13, God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their way. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so if the fallen angels, or if the sons of God were the fallen angels, then the angels should have also been destroyed by God. God should have said, because of the angels and the human beings who were, who, uh, were together with them, they, were, they should have been the reason and the cause for the flood. But God doesn't say that, does he? God says it's because of the people, the human beings. And last, number five, and more importantly, up to this point in the Genesis narrative, there has been no mention made of angels, fallen or unfallen. To introduce them at this point in the narrative is contrary to a natural reading of the text. In other words, it's out of context. Well, what is within context? Take note, the passage we, we are talking about is Genesis chapter 6 and the verse is... So for us to get the context, we need to go to Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. 4, 5, and 6. In Genesis 4, it sets up the line of Cain. Genesis 5, it sets up the line of Seth. And so what do some people believe? There are those who believe that the line of Seth represent the sons of God, and the line of Cain represents the daughters of men. This is what was believed by the Sugo or the last messenger of God, Brother Felix Y. Manalo. This is why this is also what we uphold in these last days. We're not going to deviate from what was preached by the messenger of God in these last days. Yes, we're going to go in depth. We're going to discuss things that was never discussed by the Sugo or Brother Iranya Manalo, but we are not going to contradict 
what was preached by the messenger and by Brother Iranio G. Manalo. So Genesis 1, or Genesis 4, sets up the line of Cain. Genesis 5 sets up the line of Seth. And so we see a branching or a, uh, a divergence of paths between these two lines that came from Adam, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. When did this begin? Genesis 4, 25 to 26, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So after Cain slew Abel, there was a, a, a replacement, another seed. What was his name? Seth. This is why the name Seth means appointed. From the line of Seth will come forth the promised seed, who would be our Lord, Jesus Christ. It could not be Cain. And so God is going to create another recipient of the promise, the line of Adam through the line of Seth. This is why if you go through the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, it goes from Mary or Joseph, and it traces all the way back to Seth and then to Adam. And so the promised seed is given to the line of Seth. And during the time of Seth, what did God do? He set apart the people who will worship and serve him for himself. This is God's policy. Ever since the beginning, this is why the Bible says that men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so we can see that God has set apart for himself the people in the line of Seth. They are the ones who will worship him. And what is central when it comes to worshiping God? Genesis 4, 3 down to 4. What else is the distinction between the line of Seth and the line of Cain? 4, 3 down to 4. After some time, Cain brought some of his harvest. And gave it as an offering to the Lord. Then Abel brought the first lamb, born to one of his sheep, killed it, and gave the best parts of it as an offering. The Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering. So the line of Seth, they were taught and they upheld the God-established way of religion, which involves the offering or sacrifice of lambs or livestock. However, the line of Cain, they upheld a man-made religion, a religion that was never taught by our Almighty God. What else? It's the distinction between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Uh, next slide, Genesis 4.16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And so another distinction is the line of Seth. They were devoid. They were out of the presence of the Lord. But the line of Seth, they had the presence of our Almighty God. What else? Genesis 5, 22 to 24, at the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God, walking in close fellowship with God. And one day he disappeared because God took him. And so Enoch is representative of the line of Seth because Enoch lived in fellowship with our Almighty God and walked with him. What also was given to the line of Seth? Next slide, Genesis 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was what? A righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And so the righteousness, or the words of God, 
take note, Noah was also known as a preacher of righteousness. And so the line of Seth, they were given the words of God. They were given the ways by which man can be put right before our Almighty God. So a comparison of the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Next slide. Line of Seth called upon the name of God. Line of Cain made a name for themselves, right? Line of Seth, they practiced God's religion, which involved the sacrifice of animals. Line of Cain practiced man-made religion, religion that was never taught by God. Line of Seth focused on building up the kingdom of God. Line of Cain focused on building the kingdom of this world. Line of Seth relied on the word of God. Line of Cain relied on human wisdom, which was needed, of course, for the progress of human civilization. Nothing wrong with human wisdom, but if you rely on human wisdom at the expense of forgetting the word of God, that's no longer of God. Uh, line of Seth resisted violence, but the line of Cain, was, they were proud of violence, like Lamech, remember? He even made a, a song about how he killed a young boy. He made a song and how he killed human beings. So they were proud of violence. Line of Seth, they sought fellowship with God. Line of Cain, they were indifferent towards God. They were only concerned about building their personal kingdoms, about their agenda. They were not concerned about fellowship with God. Line of Seth, they had the presence of God. Line of Cain, they were out of the presence of God. And most importantly, God has made a promise with the line of Seth that from that line will come forth the promised seed, our Lord Jesus Christ. But the line of Cain had no promise. As a matter of fact, Cain was under the curse of our almighty God. And so we can see the line of Seth is very different from the line of Cain. God set apart for himself the line of Seth. Is this biblical? Psalms chapter 4 verse 3. You can be sure of this. The Lord set apart for set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. This is why next uh, we believe that this, the line of Seth are referred to as the sons of God. And the line of Cain are referred to as the daughter of, daughters of men. But were the people of God. Those who were set apart for himself, were they called sons of God in Scripture? What do you think? Were they called sons of God? Yeah. Next slide, please. Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God, the people of Israel, when they were set apart by God, when they became the people of God, God says, you are the sons of the living God. How about in the Christian era? First John chapter 3, 1 down to 2. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. So in the Christian era, those who belong to Christ, they are called sons of God, when one is a person of God, a child of, or one who has been called by God, set apart by God, they can be called sons or children of God. How about the ends of the earth? Are there those who refer to as sons of God, daughters of God? Isaiah 43, verse 6, I know you know this very well. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Are they referred to here? Are the ones referred to here angels? 
spiritual beings? I don't think so. They refer to human beings. As a matter of fact, they pertain to us, the sons and daughters of God in these last days. So it is biblical for one who is a human being to be called a son of God. So long as you have been appointed by God or called by God, set apart by him. Next slide. So the sons of God and the daughters of men were the result of God's work of setting apart for himself those who were given the right to call to him. The sons of God refer to the people who rightfully worship God. They had the election of God. Well, the daughters of men referred to those who were of the world. They had no election from our almighty God. That's why you had the line of Cain and the line of Seth, right? And according to the Holy Scriptures, what was significant? Why was God so protective of the line of Seth? Why was he upset when the sons of God took upon in marriage the daughters of men or the line of Cain. Genesis chapter 4 and the verses 25, because God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, and that would be Seth. In other words, God is protecting the promised seed because the seed is going to come from the line of Seth. However, if, it's, if the line of Seth are going to intermarry with the line of Cain, then how can the promise be fulfilled? And so God was protecting the bloodline that run through the line of Seth. This is why if you look at the genealogy, you can trace the bloodline from Jesus all the way to Seth and all the way to Adam. God was protecting the seed that is to come from the line of Seth. This is why ever since the time of Genesis, God has forbidden intermarriage. Genesis 24, uh, 3 down to 4, I want you to make a vow. So Abraham was talking to a servant concerning Isaac in the name of the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not choose a wife for my son from the people here in Canaan. You must go back to the country where I was born and get a wife for my son Isaac from among my relatives. Not only that, Isaac, when he was going to choose a son for Jacob, Genesis 28, 1-3, Isaac called Jacob, greeted him and told him, don't marry a Canaanite, go instead to Mesopotamia, to the home of your grandfather Bethuel, and marry one of the young women there, one of your uncle Laban's daughters. May Almighty God bless your marriage and give you many children so that you will become the father of many nations. See, even during the time of Genesis, God has made it clear to his people, to those who belong to the line of Seth, and so on and so forth. God said, do not intermarry with the line of Cain, to protect, to protect the coming of the promised seed or the Messiah of our Lord God. Not only that, what is also another reason why God forbid marrying unbelievers? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 16, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what, uh, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there? between Christ and Belial. And so it's going to have consequences when two people who do not share the same faith are going to marry each other. And so what happened when the, line, when the, the sons of God, the line of Seth, married um, the daughters of men, who is the line of Cain, what did God feel about that? Genesis chapter 6, 2 down to 3. 
the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, right? And they married any of them they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. So was God happy with that? When the sons of God, the line of Seth, decided to marry those who were the daughters of men or the line of Cain, God was not happy. In fact, God said, my spirit will not contend with man forever. He made it clear to them what their boundaries were when it comes to marriage. Yet they violated the teachings of God. So God says, I will not contend with man forever. His days will be 120 years. In other words, God has given humanity 20, 120 years here before the flood will come and destroy all of the flesh. And so what is this 120 years called? 1 Peter 3 verse 20, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And so the 120 years that God mentioned there represents the divine long-suffering, the patience of God as he waited in the days of Noah. And so when we go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, we know God is upset. And here comes something or some or a word that you're prob you probably heard, right? Genesis 6, 4, the Nephilim. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. The Nephilim. Nephilim? Nephilim? How many here have heard of Nephilim? Yeah? <laughs> How many here watched the Russell Crowe movie about Noah? <laughs> Where they portrayed the Nephilim, right? And they were helping him build the ark. I mean, there's so many theories today about the Nephilim. But here, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. So here is the Nephilim. What is the most popular view about the Nephilim? Next slide, please. It is the fallen angel view. The sons of God were fallen angels and had intercourse with human beings, which resulted in Nephilim. And so Nephilim had weird DNA, right? Because they were hybrid beings who were half human and half spiritual being. Half human and half angel. And how do they look like? Well, next slide. I don't think they really look like Aquaman, <laughs> right? And so there were these giants, and they're portrayed as heroes, men of renown, right? And sometimes they don't look like that. They portray him like this. Next slide. <laughs> Gruesome. And there are even those who say, next slide, Nephilim is the result of aliens who came to earth. That's why they're called sons of God. They came from outer, outer space. And they had intercourse with human beings. And the result is Nephilim. So they're not human. They came from somewhere else, somewhere far away from a distant galaxy. And so you have all these different popular beliefs about the Nephilim. However, I want to give you next slide five reasons why I believe the Nephilim were not, okay? Were not hybrid beings. Is that okay? If I give you five reasons? Yeah, at least when somebody approaches you, hey, do you believe in the Nephilim? Yeah, I believe in the Nephilim. It's in the Bible. 
What are they? Well, I don't believe that they are hybrid beings. Why? Number one, because the sons of God were human beings. So it was human beings having intercourse with human beings. And what would be the result? Not a hybrid, but human beings, right? Very simple, right? Okay, uh, number two, uh, belief that Nephilim were hybrid beings is of pagan origin. You know, there's what is called the Ugaritic literature. And the Ugaritic literature is the literature that abounded during the time of Abraham, the time of Moses. So when the Bible was being written, what influenced the people during Bible times was literature from the Ugaritic religion. And they had all kinds of myths. Many mythological traditions describe them as beings, the offspring of the gods themselves. In fact, sons of God in Ugaritic is used of members of the pantheon, as well as great kings of the earth. In the Ugaritic legend of the dawn, the chief god of the pantheon, El, seduced two human women. This union of a god with human women produced Shur, dawn, and Sim, dusk, who seemed to have become goddess representing Venus. Thus, for the pagans, gods had their origin in copulation, intercourse between gods or angelic beings and humans. Any superhuman individual in a myth or any mythological or actual giant would suggest a divine origin to the pagans. And so the belief that you can have intercourse between an angel or a supernatural being from heaven with human beings that is not from the Bible, that is that originated from pagan thinking, mythological beliefs. That's reason number two. Number three, it's biblically impossible for angels to copulate with human beings. Why? Genesis 6, 19 and 20, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. The Bible mentions those who can reproduce are those who belong to the same kind. This is why if you have an animal, two animals, female, male, of the same kind. Let's say, for example, a donkey and a zebra. Okay? They're different species, but they're of the same kind. You'll produce a hybrid offspring. I don't know what you would call that. A zebra and a donkey. A zonkey, maybe. <laughs> right? And so you can have that, but you cannot have a, a, a donkey copulating with a cat. Because it's a different kind. Human beings are of a different kind compared to what? Angels. I know angels can take on human form, but it's only a form. They can eat, but they cannot copulate. They cannot have intercourse because they're of different kind. One is heavenly, one is earthly. The only way that can be broken if, it's, it's if God gives the ability for angels to do that. Now, why would God do that and when you think about copulation intercourse right i mean why did god build that into the biology of every living thing on earth it's for what why do people find people attractive why what is that driving force it's because they want to pro create angels don't pro create so why would they find human beings sexually attractive it's not biblical it's against the biology it's against the creation 
of our almighty God. That's number three. Number four, the Bible does not explicitly say that the Nephilim is the result of intercourse between sons of God and daughters of men. Read Genesis chapter 6, verse 4 again. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So even before the intercourse is mentioned, there was already what? Nephilim. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. So the Bible doesn't say that the sons of God had intercourse with the daughters of men, and the result is Nephilim. The Bible says there was already Nephilim. And in fact, it's even possible that the Nephilim referred to there were the sons of God who are a line of Seth. And so when they had intercourse, then they had offspring, and they were heroes of old, men of renown. And so it doesn't explicitly say that the Nephilim is the result, the copulation between the sons of God, angels, all angels, and daughters of men. Number five, the Nephilim were men. Did you notice that? Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, to the Nephilim. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who was uh, the, uh, the Nephilim? They were mighty men, men of renown. They were not angels. They were not half-breeds. They were fully human. Men, mighty men, men of renown. That's why we believe that the Nephilim were human beings who became mighty on earth, men of renown. But what made them, what set them apart, which is why there was a need to, for Moses to write to give them a different description. You notice Moses, the writer of Genesis, gives them the name what? Nephilim, right? So what, what about them stood out? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at Genesis 6, verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. You notice, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. What caused Moses to give them a different description? Not just son of God or daughter of man, but Nephilim, because they stood out in terms of their stature. What was their stature? They were giants. How many here know Yao Ming? Now, if Yao Ming were to step in here, he's like seven feet six inches. I mean, if there was a race of people Yao Ming size, you're going to call him a different name, right? Nephilim, maybe. You got to call him something because they stood out. He, called, he walks in, he's going to stand out. He's going to stand out in the crowd. And so when these giants who were human beings stood out from the crowd, stood out from the rest of the people, let's call him something else. Call him Nephilim. Yeah. But we might get a clue for why they were called Nephilim. Because when you look at the word Nephilim, as like we mentioned to you before, Nephil, the, the names given, there are descriptive words, right? Someone sent me a book. It's called Name Meanings. 
And these are the Hebrew names and its meaning from Paleo-Hebrew, not modern Hebrew that we have today, but Paleo-Hebrew, the kind of Hebrew Moses probably used when he wrote the book of Genesis. And in this book of Hebrew names, guess what was Nephilim? What was the definition for Nephilim? What is it? Fallen ones, right? Fallen ones. So this is my theory, okay? This is just a theory. The Nephilims were giants, but they were human beings. They belonged to the, the sons of God, the line of Seth, but they found the women attractive because they did not, they no longer believed in the word of God. They rejected the word of God. They said, they're beautiful. Let's go ahead and have a family with them. And so they became worse and worse, and they became fallen. They were the fallen because they used to belong to God. Because how would you call someone fallen if they had no place to fall from? So they fell from grace. They fell from belonging to the, to the line of Seth. They became Nephilim. But they were giants. They're human beings. What is the proof that human beings were giants? Next slide, please. First Samuel 17, verse 4. Are Nephilims the only ones who were giants in the Bible? A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Was Goliath, was he a Nephilim? No. Came from Gath, right? What else? Deuteronomy 2, 20, 21. That's also known as the land of Rephaim. The land of Rephaim means the land of giants. Rephaim dwelt there formerly, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people great and many as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before Ammon, and they dispossessed them and settled in their land. The Ammon, the people were also as tall as uh, trees, as big as oaks. The Anakim were another race of giants. The Rephaim, another race of giants. The, the Gath brothers, who were they? The Gath brothers. Goliath and his brothers, they were also giants. So you have a whole race of giants, but they were not called Nephilim. They were just human beings who happened to be incredibly big or incredibly tall, right? And who's an example of that? Next slide, Deuteronomy 3.11. King Og was the last of the Rephaim. His coffin made of stone was six feet wide. And almost 14 feet long. Oh my goodness. According to the sand measurements, it can still be seen in the Ammonite city of Rabbah. That's why I want to go there. I want to check it out. <laughs> right? Yeah, somewhere in Ammon, I guess. <laughs> now, when you look at, when you study ancient civilizations, next slide, they always have stories about giants, right? Philippine giants. You know the Filipino giants? Egypt. There's a lot of stories about giants. It's recorded in the history books. Many ancient civilizations tell stories about giants. They write pictures. They draw pictures about giants. This is why, next slide, we even find, right, archaeological digs about giants. But you cannot dispute the data. You cannot dispute what is being excavated because they're, they're digging up lots of skeletons, which are huge, giants. Next slide. That's the range of uh, 
Look at this one. <laughs> That's pretty tall. Next slide. You have the top 10 giant discoveries just in North America. Can you imagine that? 18 feet tall, the tallest one right there in Pennsylvania. You know, these are not hoaxes. These are actual digs of skeletons who are giants as tall as 18 feet. And so there were giants in the past. And these giants during the days of pre-flood, during the days of Noah, they were causing havoc. Or causing violence. Why? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. That's pretty bad, right? And God says every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's a lot of superlatives. I think when we look at today's society, it's not too far from what it was like during the days of Noah, right? If it was wicked back then, it's also wicked during our time. When God looked upon the earth and he looked at all the people there, not only did he see wickedness, what also did God see? Genesis 6, 11 to 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of what? Violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted there. Way. So when God looked upon the earth, he saw wickedness, number one. Number two, he saw violence. Number three, he saw corruption. <laughs> hmm. Are we seeing that today too? Yes. You know, when religion, when people who purport to do good in the name of Christ begin to exhibit behavior characteristic of wickedness and violence and corrupted ways, you know what that means? We're very close to the end because we're, we're already like the people during the days of Noah. And so what did God decide to do? Galatia, uh, Genesis 6 verse 7, And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. And so God decided to destroy the human race including all living things that's on the land and you know we know god saw wickedness and violence god saw also corruption but there's another reason why god decided to destroy the whole earth what is that genesis chapter 4 if you still remember verse 11 god speaking to curse i mean god speaking to cain he said now you are under a curse the line of cain is under a curse and so God wanted to protect the line of Seth. But slowly, the line of Cain is overpowering the line of Seth. And so the seed that's supposed to come out from the line of Seth is in danger. And so God had to renew his covenant. And so he decided to destroy the whole earth so that a Messiah, the promised seed, can spring forth from the line of Seth. And so, why did God choose Noah? Genesis 6, 9 to 10. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so God decided to take Noah and 
his family and start over from that family. And what did the God do? Next slide. How did the, what was the plan to save Noah? I think we're going to the ark part, Genesis 6, 13 to 14. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And so what was God's plan for the deliverance of God's people after making his decision to destroy all of mankind by means of a flood? God told Noah, this is the plan. You're going to build an ark. What is the ark made of? Gopher wood. You know what gopher wood is? Nara, how do you know that? What is gopher wood? There's something strange about gopher wood. You know what it is? You know what's strange about gopher wood? If you look at the next slide, gopher wood, the kind, the word origin of gopher wood is uncertain because it's not a Hebrew word. Gopher wood is not a Hebrew word, yet it finds its way to the ancient text. Moses writes it as gopher wood. Why? If there's no gopher wood, what could it represent? Next slide. Noah Webster, not Noah. This is a different Noah. This is Noah Webster, the, um, the one from which the dictionary came from. In, in 1828, gives the following definition of ophir wood, a species of wood used in the construction of Noah's Ark. It turns out the word ophir is a variant spelling of ophir. And so the wood from which Noah would build his ark comes from Ophir, which would make sense because Ophir is in Havilah during the ancient times. And Noah, likely because he belongs to the line of Seth, he would remain close to the Garden of Eden in Havilah. And so the wood that he was to use will come from Ophir. It's called Ophir wood. Was Noah Webster the only one who made a reference to Ophir wood? There's a poem, The Pilgrim's Muse, the author, Minister Joseph Thomas, recites Genesis 6.14 as, Make thee an asylum of Ophir wood. By the way, this information you can get from God culture, right? And, you know, we have no affiliation with God culture. Just want to make that clear. There's no connection between this and God culture. We use some of their stuff, but not all of it I agree with. But with this, I, I do agree with. Ofer, ofer wood, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Ofer wood is go for wood, but still, why is there a G? Right? Why not just ofer wood? Why is there no G? That's a good question. And so what's the answer? Next slide. You know, the, the, the closest uh, G, the equivalent of G in Hebrew is gemel. And the word gemel comes from the word Gam means to gather together as a group of animals gathering at the water hole to drink. The pictograph script for the word gam is represented by a foot. So it, rep it means to walk and also by a swiggly line, looks like a mountain, which is water. When combined, these terms walk to the water. And so it is to gather or to walk. That's what G stands for. So Ophir wood is wood from Ophir, and Gemel, it means to 
walk or to gather animals together. And so when you combine the G, the gemel, with O for wood, this is what you get. Gather together as animals, gathering at the water hole or walk to the water, which means make thee an ark from the wood of Ophir, where the animals will be gathered. Gopher wood. That's why the gemel was added. Remember, during the days of Moses, people communicated with pictographs. So the gemel makes a big difference. It was meant to communicate what the purpose of the Ophir wood was. It is to gather the animals together. And was that biblical? Genesis 6 verse 20, pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And so gopher wood is wood from Ophir. But we still need to identify what kind of wood is that, right? Next slide. We get a hint from King Solomon. 1 Kings 10, 11, and 13. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees, precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord. And for the king's house harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almug trees nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And so what is this wood which came from Ophir? It's called almug trees. How, what did Solomon do? How did he get those trees? He sent a navy. And if you look at the Bible, it took three years to go to the place, Ophir, and back, the only place where that fits, and it even mentions isles, that would be the Philippines. So he went all the way there to get the almug trees, which is the tree from Ophir. What was the purpose of that wood? It was to build the pillars of the house of the Lord. And he was so thankful. That's why he rewarded greatly the Queen of Sheba, who was in Ophir. And we'll find out soon enough, maybe in some future lessons, she was the queen of Siba, Cebu, right? This is why Cebu is called, what is that again? The queen city, Cebu, because it's known for queen of Sheba. And from there, he got the Almug trees. What else was the Almug trees used for? Second Chronicles 9, 10 to 11, for the terraces to build the house of? The Lord. So here's Solomon. He had so many resources, but he decides to use the wood all the way from Ophir. Why? Because he knows that's a significant place. Because that's the place where Noah also built his ark. Now, what is this algum tree or almug tree? Next slide. If you notice the pictures of the uh, temple, right? What color is the pillar in the terraces? It's kind of red wood, right? This is why when you look at the Hebrew meaning of algum, it means red. Next slide. Sandalwood. Where can you find red sandalwood? Take note, King, uh, the Bible says that it was not found in the Middle East. Where can you find it? Next slide. 
in all these East, far eastern countries, including the Philippines. Is there a red sandalwood in the Philippines? Next slide. Yes, it's called the Nara tree. What are the characteristics of the Nara tree? It's known to be termite and moisture free. Perfect for building an ark, right? And Nara tree actually is a Hebrew name. Next slide. It means Naara, which means she who must be admired, admirable, wonderful, worthy of admiration, young girl. A reference to the queen of Sheba. This is why the Nara tree, that's the Almug tree, that is the Ophir wood or gopher wood that was used to build the ark of Noah. And how was the ark supposed to be built? Genesis 6. 15 and 16, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. So this is the dimensions of the ark. How long is it supposed to be? 300 cubits long. How wide? 50 cubits wide. How high? 30 cubits high. Well, what's a cubit? Well, it depends on what time frame you're talking about. During the time frame of this time, cubit was about 20 feet or two, about two feet, 1.6, 1.7 feet. And so if you do the math, next slide, just uh, give you an idea of how it might look like. Next slide, size of Noah's Ark, 515 feet long. That's pretty long. 86 feet wide, 51 feet high. It should be that high because it's supposed to be three stories, right? So it makes sense. That's Noah's Ark. And what's important is not what the cubit is. What's important are the dimensions. It's, five, it's 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. Why are the dimensions of Noah's Ark significant? Well. Scientist by the name of Dr. Sion Hong, that's his picture right there, right? Looks like uh, that guy from a comedian, what's his name? Nah, not Kim Jong un, it's <laughs> different. But you know, his team conducted a study and compared different combinations of dimensions for the arc, and they concluded after doing their analysis, that Noah's Ark carefully balanced the conflicting demands of stability, resistance to capsizing, comfort, sea keeping, and strength. This is why the Ark, the dimensions of the Ark, it is in the same proportions as a modern cargo ship today because it utilizes the different factors for maximum comfort, maximum strength, and maximum stability. How did Noah know that? Well, it came from who? It came from God. That's why Noah knows, right? It, I don't think he studied in Mapua and learned about engineering. God gave him the exact dimensions. What else? Why was the, 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 uh, the boat so large? There was only eight of them. Genesis 6, 19 and 21. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind. 
and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind to every kind will come will come to you to keep them alive and you shall take for yourself of all the food that is eaten and you shall gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them what was why was the ark built at such a grand scale because it was meant not just for noah and his family it was also meant for who yeah the land animals not the sea creatures right the land animals are supposed to go into the ark because god is going to start over with noah and also the other animals that's why they came in twos now if noah was going to get all these animals together it might take a long time so what did god do he caused the animals to go to him this is why it's called go for wood right the g the gemel moses was trying to communicate to us i did not gather them it was god who gathered them because god gave them the instinct to go to that place made of ophir wood hence moses decided to say let's make it go for wood that little G, that little Gemel, it told us how it all happened. God caused every kind of animal to come to him so that they can be kept alive. However, there's this guy. Right? You know who this guy is? Yeah, next slide. That's Bill Nye, the science guy. And he had some criticism concerning... The animals in the ark. What did he say? What was his argument? He said one of his points was that there would be no way for Noah and his family to house and care for 14,000 animals on the ark. Second, he implied that the space available for the animals was highly inadequate for the ark. He used the National Zoo as an example in Washington, in Washington D.C. He said that the zoo had 400 species of animals and 100, 163 acres. And so he's arguing that Noah's ark and the story about the gathering of all these animals in the, in the ark doesn't make any sense. How can you fit all those animals in the ark? Well, next slide. Do all the species, do all the kinds of animals have to go in the ark? Not all, right? Huge number of animals would not need to be taken aboard the ark because they are water dwellers. So when you filter through those who need to be in the ark to survive, you only basically come down to, next slide, 14,000 animals. Will they all fit in the ark, including the dinosaurs? What do you think about it? If Noah was going to fit all the animals into the ark, and if God wanted for all these animals to fit in the ark, what do you think will be brought into the ark? The adults or the babies? The babies. How big is a baby dinosaur? <laughs> Tyrannosaurus rex, probably this big. Will all the dinosaurs fit there? Will all the 14,000 animals fit in the ark? Well, let's, let's go ahead and calculate that for ourselves. Next slide. What is the capacity of the ark? Well, you can fit 569 stock cars inside the ark. And how many animals can fit in one stock car? Next slide. It can fit 240 sheep-sized animals. How big is a sheep? Like this? So for each car, you can have 240. And so there's 569 cars or 
stock cars there. So 5569 times 240, right? Next slide. What do you get? Next slide. 136,560 animals can fit in Noah's Ark. We need space for only how many? 14,000. That already includes the mates. And so next slide, you only have 10.25. You only fill up 10.25%. So they have a lot of space. It's not quite the same acreage as a zoo, but think about it. When you go to an airplane, how much space do you have? This, <laughs> right? Why? Because the plane is not meant to be your home. The ark was not meant to be the home for these animals. It was only passport, passport yeah, temporary. And so the comfort, it was not meant to be its permanent home. It was a place to transition from the ancient world to the new world that God was creating. Why is God creating a new world? Next slide, Genesis 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. God renewed his covenant. What is that? God has a promised seed. He's already protected that seed, right? So that seed, the promised seed is well and alive. It was almost contaminated by the line of Cain, but God protected it. And so the promised seed is still well in line. And God has made a covenant with Noah. And, you know, when we study all about Noah's Ark, I don't know, when you read Genesis chapter 6, remember I told you when we look at history, we need to look for hints of Christ, right? Did you see a hint of Christ? In the Genesis chapter 6 story, we know about the wickedness and the judgment, the violence, the corruption, and God's judgment. But did you see a hint of Christ? Next slide, Genesis 6 verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with... Pitch. What is pitch? You know what pitch is? Remember, Noah and his family and all the animals are to be inside the ark. And the ark is to be covered outside and inside with pitch. Is God trying to tell us something here? What do you think? He must be. What do you think? Could that be? What is God trying to tell us to cover the inside and outside with pitch? We get a clue. When you look at pitch, safety, that's good. So there's no leak, right? You know, when it comes to God, there's always a, there's always a practical reason and there's always a deeper spiritual reason. That's where you find the hint of Christ. You know what pitch is in Hebrew? Next slide. When you look at Hebrew, pitch, what is that? Kofer. Kofer in Hebrew. You see that? Pitch used in Genesis 6.2, Genesis uh, 6.14 is kofer. What does that mean? <laughs> in Hebrew, what does that mean? Well, two dictionaries of Hebrew. Kofer means to atone. You see that? What else? It's from an unused word. It's the price of a life. Ransom. Atonement. 
ransom. What do you see there? The atonement of who? Christ. The ransom of Christ's life. It represents atonement. And so even back then, during the days when God looked upon the earth and all he saw was wickedness, violence, and corruption, when God judged the ancient world, God gave a hint of the coming of Christ and what he would do. He would ransom his life for the atonement of our sins. Isn't that nice? This is why we are studying this. You know what the Lord Jesus Christ said when he was here? Matthew 24, 37. He said, when the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man? Christ. When the Son of Man comes again, it will be exactly like the days of Noah. This is why we can kind of tell if we're close to that day. This is why the Bible and the study of its history is useful for us because we look at the patterns. If we see a pattern during the days of Noah and it's happening now, we know there's a connection there. Christ said the Son of Man will come again. And when the Son of Man comes, it will be exactly like the days of Noah. So what were the days of Noah like? Next slide. Let's do a comparison to then and now. Right? Then, population explosion. Now? Yeah, population explosion. Then, spread of wickedness. Now? Spread of wickedness. Then, spread of violence. How about today? Yeah. Then, spread of corruption. How about today? Even in religious circles, right? Then resistance to righteousness. Now, same thing. People don't want what is right. They prefer what is wrong. Then they ignored the warning of the preaching of Noah. How about today? Yeah, people ignore the message of Christ. Then the water destroyed the whole world. How about now? The fire will destroy the whole world. Then how many were saved? Few. How about now? Well, if you follow the pattern, only a few will be saved. You know how few? How many were saved during the days of Noah? How many? Plus the animals. Excluding the animals, how many were saved? I want you to think about that. Only eight. And this is the question. You know, we were looking at the, the days of Noah. And there's something very critical that we cannot overlook here. And if there's a time where you should be listening to this Bible study, it should be now. Okay, right now. Hopefully everyone's attention because this is crucial. Okay. Fewer saved. But there's something I want you to understand here. Next slide. The line of Seth was set apart for God. How many people belong to the line of Seth? The Bible doesn't say. But probably a lot. The line of Seth back then were practicing the true religion. The line of Seth back then, they represented the people of God. The line of Seth back then, they worshipped the living God. They called upon God. But how many from the line of Seth were saved? How many? Only eight. Take note, the line of Seth, they were set apart, chosen by God to be his people. Yet, despite the fact that they were chosen by God from the line of Seth, small remnant. 
Only eight. <laughs> and this is the, the part where we can connect this to Isaiah. Next slide. One, eight to nine. So the daughter of Zion, set apart by God, right? Is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a guard of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. You notice the Bible says very small, not small. Very small remnant. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. So even from the people that God set apart, the daughter of Zion, he only left behind a very small remnant, just like during the days of Seth. From the days of Seth, many were called. Many were given the right to worship him. But only a very small remnant. Eight, only eight were saved. And then the Lord Jesus Christ adds this, Matthew 24, when the Son of Man comes back, it will be exactly like the days of Noah. So if only a very small remnant from the people of God, the people of God, okay, the line of Seth, only a small remnant made it to the ark. How many do you think will make it when the Son of Man comes? I hope it's more than eight. But it's only a very small remnant. This is why, brethren, what should we do? <laughs> if we count here, there's more than eight here. <laughs> this is why, if we want to be saved, and if we are at the ends of the earth, there's one thing to do. Isaiah 45, 22. God says, turn to me. And be saved. You want to be saved? Turn to who? To God. All you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Don't place your hope in any human leader here on earth. You come from the ends of the earth. Christ is coming soon. Put your hope in the one who can save you. No human being here on earth can save you. But God can save you. God says, I am God. There is no other. Brethren, if I were you, I will place my complete trust on God and on the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Did you get that? And so, brethren, let us pray that we will be among those who will have God's grace on that day. Let us all stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting and most holy father yes, thank you so much for giving us this warning we believe the purpose of warning is motivated by love because you want us to prepare ourselves for the upcoming day of judgment and so we look up to you you our god we make us our savior we look up to you and give our life to you. Yes. We only ask and beg. Yes. Remember our loved ones. Yes. When you will send your begotten son. Yes. To execute judgment upon the whole earth. Yes. Remember us. Yes. We know we are far from righteous. Yes. We know we are far from godly. Yes. 
We know we are far from holy. But we believe in your work of grace. We believe that you are a loving father. Since you have called us to belong to your people. Have mercy upon us. We look to you now, O God. Save us on that day. Our Lord Jesus, we cry unto you. Remember your servants. Have mercy upon us. Thank you for giving us wisdom. Thank you for giving us understanding. Help us to grow in faith each and every day of our life. Please pardon us of our iniquities. Help us to devote our lives in righteousness and godliness. Thank you, Father, for having mercy upon us. Bless those who are being ridiculed and persecuted. Those who are reviled all over the world because of the name of your Son. Thank you so much for listening to us. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.